if I can show my kids, if I can show my students that they don't have to be little classical prodigies to make something of themselves, I feel like that matters. I'm Joni Deutsch, and from WFAE in Charlotte, this is Amplifier, the music podcast where we shine a light on the artist who calls Charlotte home. Because Charlotte is more than just a banking city or a football city. So every other Thursday on this podcast, we're going to explore the people, places, and things that help define the Queen City's crown sound. And today, we'll hear from the classically trained music educator who's encouraged pride and visibility for Latin culture. That's coming up on Amplifier. Amplifier. And then the beat will drop. Amplifier. 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 Can you introduce yourself and tell us what you do in Charlotte Music? My name is Dalia Raso. I am the vocalist for the bilingual alternative pop band Dalia. And I am also an active music educator for Charlotte Mecklenburg Schools. And Dalia, I so appreciate you joining us, especially now, because at the time of this recording, it is Hispanic Heritage Month. It's a celebration of Latin music, Hispanic culture, and of course, music. And that includes your band, as you were just mentioning, Dahlia, and your new music, which was recently featured on NPR Music's Tiny Desk Contest. We'll talk about your band and your work in Charlotte Music, including music education, in just a bit. But I think it's worth noting, Dahlia, that while this is your first interview as a lead singer for your band, music interviews aren't new to you, as you've previously worked as a North Carolina music journalist. So between writing about it, educating around it, playing it for yourself, I'd love to know where did this passion for music come from? Okay. <laughs> it's definitely funny and interesting to be on the other side now because, yes, I used to do the interviewing many, many years back. I was born in Brownsville, Texas, because my father was, he's retired now. He was a civil engineer, and he was constantly working on both sides of the border of the Mexican and U.S. border. And when I was four years old, my brother was about six months old, we moved to Monterrey, Nuevo León, which is a state up north that borders Texas. And I was very fortunate that my mom, from a very young age, enrolled both my brother and myself in a music conservatory in Monterrey, Nuevo León. I always remember this story because she used to tell us that when, I think when she was student teaching, she's an educator as well, 
in Mexico City, I think it was a building either next to or very close to the music conservatory in Mexico City. And she would see the music students going and coming, going and coming. And she would see that and she said, I want my children to experience that. I want my children to study music and and have that opportunity. And when we were young, I started studying classical piano when I was eight with a private instructor. And then by the age of 10, I was enrolled in the music conservatory in Monterrey. And I studied violin and piano. And so my upbringing was very classical. Um, Once I moved to the the United States in 2000, a year after we moved here, I started studying at the North Carolina School of the Arts. And I did all of high school there studying classical piano. It's now called the University of North Carolina School of the Arts. But back then it was NCSA. Um, So that's really where it came. It's really thanks to my mom who supported it and encouraged it into my dad as well, who was on board. You mentioned classical music. What about contemporary music influences? What inspired you in terms of genres or artists at that time? Let me think, because I was, I think unconsciously, I was very much influenced by what my parents were listening to. And even then in the 90s, it was considered oldies, like the Beatles. My mom listens to a lot of classical contemporary artists like Armando Manzanero, who's a very, very famous Mexican singer-songwriter composer. Adoro la calle en que nos vimos La noche cuando nos conocimos He actually passed away, I think maybe this past winter. Um, so it was kind of an odd mix because my parents are very... What's the word? They're just very classical. They didn't listen to a whole lot of mainstream or a whole lot of rock or reggae or even pop. You know, it was just kind of like this is what they liked and this is what it was. And it was great because I was influenced by by a lot of that and I appreciate a lot of that. Like, um, I'm sure you've heard of uh, Violeta Parra, who's a, a very well-known Chilean singer. Gracias a la vida que me ha dado tanto, me dio dos luceros. But my dad, see, here's a thing. Here's, a, here's an important thing. My dad, prior to completing his degree in civil engineering, was a professional Mexican folk dancer. And he traveled the world, and at some point, he danced in Carnegie Hall. From what I understand, he eventually left that because he knew he wasn't going to be able to really raise a family on a professional dancer's salary. But a lot of that classical instrumental Latin American music that he used to dance to was constantly heard in the house. So when I listen to it, even now, like it moves me significantly because I think about my dad, you know, and I and, and I liked it. I, I loved it as much as he did. And even nowadays, I I tell him, why? Why didn't you teach me how to dance? Because I see the performances and I see the dancers and the colors and, and the dresses and and the whole performance, and I, and I love it. I feel close to it. And it could be because 
I'm very grounded in my Mexican identity, but it could also be because it's something that I feel brings me or keeps me close to my dad. Um, so then when I started discovering other genres, it was really because of situations outside of my home. For instance, my mom's younger sister, she's a graphic artist, and she's um, now a professor at like two or different universities in Mexico City. She was more of like a reggae, Bob Marley kind of thing. Um, so when I would visit her, I would go through her records because I'd never seen those records in my house. And I think that's how I started to discover other things. My cousins, who they introduced me to a lot of music too, um, Julian, who is my, he's, he's older than me, but he's probably the one that influenced me the most. He was a big Radiohead fan. And I started listening to Radiohead because of him. And then, you know, you start listening to Radiohead and then you start getting into other things. So Radiohead is definitely, definitely up there on my list. A lot of Green Day, um, a lot of Garbage, The Cranberries, Definitely Portishead. Those are all the names that are coming to me in that moment between 99 and, and 2000 from when I moved from Mexico to here. And then once I was here, I discovered Incubus and I went crazy over Incubus. I was, like I said, I was listening to a lot of English music. And then in 2003, something major happened. I moved to the States when I was 13, which is not like a fun age to begin with. Um, so I was, and I and I like to voice it because I think it's important for other youth or other teenagers or other young people to know an identity crisis is okay. It's normal, especially when you're kind of mingling between two worlds. Um, unless it's someone that has experienced it themselves, it's very hard for people to know how to support you because you might have all the support from teachers at school, but they don't really know what it's like, you know, to, you know, navigate in a, in a Latin American world. And then you're at home and you're not really understood when you, it comes to you developing, like you're developing as an American simultaneously, you know, so you're literally living two lives. And I was struggling with a lot of that. And then in two, in 2003, my mom sent me to Mexico for a summer to play with a summer youth symphony. So I think this project is still around. It's called Orquesta Sinfónica Infantil de México, which literally translates to the Children's uh, Symphony Orchestra of Mexico. I went the summer that I was 16, and I spent this whole summer with other young people from the entire Republic of Mexico. So not only did I solve my identity crisis, I had moved to the United States with this mentality that Mexico was just Monterrey. Mexico was just what I had experienced in Monterrey. And it wasn't necessarily fun. Um, Monterrey is, uh, I'm sure it's changed now, but I didn't have the best time in terms of um, racism, classism, there's a lot of white versus non-white, and people don't know this. And when we moved here, I was like, I don't, I don't ever want to go back to Mexico. Um, 
But then I went to the Osim, which is short for this orchestra that I'm telling you about. And to this day, some of my best friends I met in the orchestra. So that kind of, it saved me. Uh, it saved me also in terms of one of the, like one of the major concerns or discussions in classical music is that a lot of the composers that are addressed in the general music classroom, they're all white or they're mostly white. Nobody's bringing to students composers from other countries. I mean, I'm sure they are now because we're, we're working towards this and we're fighting for this. But when I was at School of the Arts, and I say this with all the love in my heart, I don't want the school, you know, to take this personally, but I was the only Mexican in a high school class of like a hundred and something kids. And I'm pretty sure every composer we ever talked about was European or American. And... I remember finally being seen when I had my junior year a history music teacher, Dr. Irna Priore. She um, she was Brazilian. She looked like me. Um, unfortunately, she passed away several years ago from cancer. But she um, she changed my life. She completely she made me. And see now I'm even getting like um, I owe a lot to her. Um, not just in terms of identity. Um, because she saw me for who I was. There's a lot of pressure in the classical world, so much pressure. Um, I moved here having started to take music lessons when I was eight. Most of the kids here start taking lessons when they're three, four. They had several years of advantage um, on me. And she told me at some point my junior year, she was like, you know, Dahlia, you don't have to perform. There's so many other fields within music that you can excel in and make a difference. But when you're at a performing arts school, the expectation is for you to perform. The pressure is for you to perform. And I just didn't have the focus because I was dealing with identity issues, because I was dealing with teenage issues, you know, self-esteem issues, you know, um, insecurity issues, because everybody else was so much better than I was. And, um, and on top of that, Everybody we study doesn't look like me, you know? And I didn't really make sense of that until I got my master's degree at UNCG. And I owe so much of everything that has become clear to me now to the program at UNCG. It definitely, it opened my world. It opened my eyes. It all of a sudden made me feel like I mattered and that there are Latin American composers out there that we can bring into the classroom. Not just Latin American composers, like from everywhere. Coming up, Dahlia breaks down her band's brand new single, which was recently featured on NPR Music. That's right after this break on Amplifier. So Dahlia, I'd like to focus a little bit more, now that we've talked a little bit about your your music upbringing and also your music education work, I'd love to talk a little bit more about you as an artist in your own right. So Dahlia, 
you are the leader uh, of the band named after you, named Dahlia, and it's a bilingual band that you formed with a few others in the Charlotte area, uh, including Tony Areza, and uh, listeners may recognize him as being a previous alumnus of the Samplifier podcast. Now, your debut song as a band is the one that NPR Music recently featured. It's titled No Volver a Sentir, which is Spanish for To Not Feel Again. The lyrics have been there for quite some time. I think we always assume that like most songs are about love. But it doesn't necessarily have to be love. It could just be disappointment. When I wrote this song, I was very frustrated because I had genuinely tried to make the best out of a particular situation. And it just kept exploding in my face, exploding in my face, exploding in my face. And you're going to notice, I think that I don't know why there's a lot of reference to time frames in my work. But I say the week went by like sand through my fingers my poor fame stays instead of our dreams. Cotton candy devoured by the mouth of the monster, promising us the sky. I am finished by fear. I'm avoiding falling into a trap or another ending without remedy. I know it sounds kind of weird when I translate it, but in Spanish it flows. Um, and then the chorus says, those that know us well understand when we fall and we try not to feel again. So again, there's that like, there's that connection where unless you know exactly, unless you've gone through exactly what I've gone through or something very similar, you don't really know why I'm falling right now and avoiding feeling altogether again. I think that's what it is. Um, so I'm really kind of singing to those of us that do know what we're going through. That's why I say, los que nos conocen bien, those that know us well, understand when we fall and we try not to feel again. Dalia came to be unexpectedly. I, if you had told me a year ago that I would be sitting here today talking about a band, I would have said there's no way because I actively was writing music and, and playing with bands and, and trying to get a solid project going for years and years and years. And after my last band in around 2013, um, I was just done. I'm just going to do, do something else. But I never stopped writing. Like, words come to me very easily, and I never stop writing. I just, I write, I write, I write. I never really stopped composing either. 
and I try to get away from it and just focus on other things, but it seems to be something that just happens and that I need to do, and it's very much a part of me. So I have, like, this pile of songs just from the years, and No Volver a Sentir happened during a rehearsal completely organically. We had been working on on many other songs that I had already brought into the studio with music in them, but the boys, I call them, the boys or the gentlemen started jamming. Tony Arriaza, who's the guitar player who many of you will probably recognize, Juan Pablo Chavez Vera, who's the bass player, and Edgar Marcano, who's the drummer. And I can't tell you, Joni, how fortunate I am. And I know this sounds a little exaggerated, but when I get up there and I, and I perform with them, I mean, I feel like I have an army behind me. I feel a thousand percent supported. I feel even more committed to the project because I don't want to let them down. Dalia, I, I mentioned at the start of the interview that in addition to playing music, in addition to educating students on music, you've written about music as a journalist for the publication Indie Week. And over the years, you've highlighted a Grammy award-winning Latin artist like Afro-Colombian hip-hop trio, Chalkeep Town, and the late, great Pau Donas. I would love to be able to hear from your perspective, from the educator perspective, the musician perspective, and of course now this journalist perspective. What can you say about Latin music in the city of Charlotte and at large, the state of North Carolina? I was gone. I'm gonna. I think it's important for me to say this. I was. I was in Charleston for five years, um, from 2015 to 20. No, 2014 to 2019, and. So I feel like I was definitely absent for those five years. Um, and part of the reason why I left was because my band hadn't worked out. And I just, at that point, I had explored possibilities making music, like in the Piedmont, in the Triangle. I kept trying to come down to Charlotte for one reason or the other. It just wasn't working. I was always, when I was in Charlotte, it was always because of a show that I had written about so that's really how I know Tony and I know his his work and his fight to bring Latin American music to to Charlotte. And that's part of the reason why I wanted to move here so badly, because I felt like this is where I'm supposed to be. You know, it's definitely alive because I will tell you that there is really not a whole lot going down in Charleston. And I thought that there would be because. You know, it's 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 an artsy kind of musical, or at least that's what I thought. I'd never been there before I moved, 
But um, but no, I was very mistaken, and there really wasn't a whole lot. I tried to make music down there, never happened. And it's funny because now it now at this point in my life, I do look at it from a different perspective. Ten years ago, I I in all honesty, I just wanted to make it. I just wanted to. And maybe it's because I felt so invisible growing up and, like, not worthy. And then that I felt, like, this pressure to, like, I want to make it. I want to prove myself. I want to show the world that I can make something musical, even if it's not an impeccable performance of a Beethoven sonata, you know, kind of thing. But now, at this point in my life, I'm also looking at it from if I can show my kids, if I can show my students that they don't have to be little classical prodigies to make something of themselves, I feel like that matters. If I can push them and encourage them to create, be you, write your own stuff, because all the time I was being told that I was wasting my time. You're not wasting your time. You're really not, because... um, to stifle creativity like that, I'm just, you know, like, I want all of our students, I want these next generations to have access to that. And I feel like if they can see me, especially Latin American students, again, like I was mentioning earlier, a lot of them don't push for stuff because they don't see people that look like them doing it. But if they see somebody that looks like them doing it, this close to them, like my teacher or my mom's friend or, you know, oh, well, they're doing it. That must mean that I can do it. You know, I really, I really want kids to, I mean, music has saved me. And I know that sounds so cheesy and so cliche, but it has, you know, my mom, probably without realizing it, she saved me, my identity, my person. Um, I hope that the Latino scene continues to grow. Times are changing, times are evolving, and we have to evolve with the times. Dahlia Razo is the lead singer of the band Dahlia. You can find and follow the music on Instagram at band underscore Dahlia. Amplifier is a production of WFAE. This episode was written and produced by me, Joni Deutsch. Our editor is Jennifer Lang. Our theme music is provided by Dirty Art Club. Share your favorite Charlotte music recommendations with me on social media. You can tag and follow me. I'm at a change of tune. Amplifier features a new musical episode every other Thursday. So make sure to subscribe to the Amplifier podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you find podcasts. And if you're listening on NPR One, make sure to give us a heart or a favorite. Check out the playlist and show notes for today's episode, along with a Charlotte music map and a way for you to submit your music on our website, wfae.org slash amplifier. Until next time, I'm Joni Deutsch. Thanks for listening.